There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight is the smorgasbord of police work. Uh, below me is very sexy, retired NYPD Sergeant and Professor Michael Geary. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Good, Billy. Thank you. You know, it's it's. I was glad that you were ready at the last minute to come on the show, but I saw a little bit of, um, well, somewhat breaking news, not breaking uh, news in the case, but breaking news on the social media end of it that sort of implied something, and we'll get into that a little bit later. And also with me tonight is straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective with a fresh new haircut from Giuseppe's Barbershop in Brooklyn. Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing good, Billy, and you are a good detective. You spotted the haircut like that. <laughs> well, all of our subscribers will look at that haircut and say, wow, Phil looks spiffy. Maybe I should take my hat off, but I didn't get a uh, I didn't get a haircut. But I'm, You got a hat, that, Bill. You got yeah, I don't know why I was wearing a hat. I just I forgot to take it off. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll show that I still have some hair left. Anyway, guys, I was watching. I've been, of course, following every new thing or it's what old is what's old is new and vice versa and there's really nothing tremendously new but um the chief chief fry comes on uh most days and gives a little bit of an update and you may construe what he said as that they're looking in a certain area almost like that they have a suspect and i don't believe they do i don't believe they have a suspect i'm not sure that they even totally have a direction toward a, a suspicious person in this case. Uh, there's been so much information. There's been so many things that we've heard about. The, of course, the white Hyundai Elantra 2011 uh, to 2013. But so far, no information coming back on that car. And no, no wonder there's 22,000 of them that they have to... Uh, eliminate or check out. The other thing, it seems every day new video comes in. And one of the uh, uh, pieces of video that came out was from the, that corner bar. Uh, here's up on the screen. You could see it, the corner club. And there was some video of um, uh, Kaylee and Miss uh, um, Mogan hanging out at that location prior to them uh going home or prior to him going to the food truck. And that, it seems like, you know, everyone that appears in a video all of a sudden becomes suspect numero uno, you know, and that's America's most wanted. And it couldn't be more from the truth. I mean, you know, we have to go and police have to go with where the evidence leads, but everyone that sees anything on social media points fingers and says, look, that's the guy, you know, and that's not how police work is done. And that's not how we separate uh, who may be a good suspect from who may just be uh, 
someone that you're interested in speaking with. Mike, thoughts? Yeah, the um, I, people want so badly to have a break in the case, leads in the case, solid leads in the case, that the um, the video, I think, is put out there by the police to help jog people's memories to say, look, well, here's a piece of video. Um, perhaps anyone may have seen them at the club. Could you just go over in your thoughts? Did anybody approach them, you know, to jog people's memories and maybe in a way solicit um, a little bit more information? You never know what little bit of information may point them to a particular suspect or to a particular theory of the case that may be more accurate or maybe the best. Um, so it's it's a good thing that they um, issue these um, little bits of, uh, you know, uh, videotape from outside the bars and things like that. Um, and I think it's to jog people's memories. And, and I'm glad they're doing it. You know, it's necessary. You got to you got to keep keep uh, people thinking about it and and getting people to say, you know what? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Um, let me just call into the police or something. You, all you need is one person. One hundred percent. Phil. Uh, bottom line is that uh, tape was not released by uh, the police, by the Moscow police. That was a local bar owner or someone affiliated with the bar put that tape out there. It hasn't even been verified that it's actually uh, the victims in this case. But uh, when you look at that video, uh, now there's uh, social media, there's uh, podcasters, uh, you know, YouTube content creators. And again, uh, you know, making, uh, you know, giant leaps and bounds on who the perpetrator is and pointing things out. And I would strongly against, uh, uh, strongly advise against any kind of behavior where someone is named as possibly being involved in this thing. And then you go uh, calling them or contact them on social media and making threats. You could be held accountable with crim criminal charges. The police uh, uh, come out uh, from Moscow. The chief of police said that any student that's uh, threatened, they're going to take it seriously and they're going to pursue charges. So, again, I would strongly advise against anyone making any leaps and bounds about who the perpetrator is and making threats or, or just contacting them or calling them out. You could really put yourself in a trick bag for criminal charges. All right. Let me play some of uh, what Chief Fry um, had to say. All that you like I said, I uh, can't discuss that um, part of the investigation, but as soon as we can release that information, we will. The Moscow Police Department releases some updates in the investigation, but what does it all mean? Retired NYPD Sergeant Joseph Jack alone breaks it down. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Law & Crime. I'm Jesse Weber. We have some more updates for you right now in the University of Idaho murder investigation. I'm talking about the killings of 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves, 21-year-old Madison Mogan, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal, and 20-year-old Ethan Chapin, whose bodies were found in their off-campus home back on November 13th. Now, at the time of this recording, there have been no arrests, no publicly identifiable suspect, and no indication that the murder weapon has been recovered. But as I said, the Moscow Police Department has issued a press release with some updates, and to help me break down these updates, I want to bring in Joseph Jack alone, retired NYPD's sergeant and author of the Criminal Investigative Function, third edition. Joseph, thanks for coming here on Sidebar. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jesse. I'm going to go through some of these different points, and then I want your reaction to it and what this means. So the first two points, are, um, let me rephrase, I'm not necessarily going in the order of which it's listed, but I think I, this is the way that I think we should structure it. So two points that they have in this press release are number one, they say, no suspect 
has been identified and only vetted information that does not hinder the investigation will be released to the public. We encourage referencing official releases for accurate and updated progress. All press releases and related information is available and then they give their website. They go on to say that investigators believe someone has information that adds context to what occurred on the night of the murders and continue requesting additional pictures, video, and social media content. Our focus remains on the investigation, not on an individual's activities displayed in the tip. Whether you believe it is significant or not, your information might be one of the puzzle pieces that help solve these murders. And then it says digital submissions of tips and leads will not be publicly disclosed due to our ongoing commitment to keep information private and details may be pertinent to the ongoing criminal investigation. My first question to you is, does that alarm you? Because doesn't it make it seem like they're not as advanced in the investigation as you would hope? No, not yet. I mean, I am concerned about things are, um, you know, how things are progressing. You have to understand something. The police department always holds back information. They don't provide things that will uh, be detrimental to the case. And we have seen a large outpouring of information coming from the true crime community. And some of it has been just wrong and, and just it's just been actually awful. So they have to try to, to uh, kind of combat that. And if you there's a lot of things that they're saying in here, we're not saying in there, right? So it, there's a lot of what they were uh, so they're, they're trying to tell everybody listen we we haven't come out with anything publicly yet that doesn't mean that they don't have a suspect or suspects but what it does tell everybody it kind of puts them on notice that anything that comes out basically outside from the police department is you kind of not pay attention because they're not running the investigation the Moscow Police Department the state and the FBI are all involved in this right so the Moscow we know because I don't see a federal here Right, you know, not yet. Right? We we don't we're not privy to everything. But here's the uh, here's the other thing when you look at this. There's an old motto that all that somebody knows, and that's probably universal throughout the entire United States. And the idea is to try to get those people who have maybe witnessed something that they thought was strange. This is a small community. This is when you think of the grand scheme of things, you know, small university. People coming and going. You have family members. You know, I'm going to have to, uh, I want to stop it there just because I, I disagree with um, almost everything he's saying. Um, I believe that if this came out in the first week or two weeks, I'd be all on board with it. But what I think it's really saying now is that they don't have a lot and they maybe don't even have direction. And they're looking for that smoking gun piece of evidence that points them in the right direction. Uh, don't forget, detectives get most of their information through interview and interrogation. And that is what the best detectives do. They're, they're experts at interviewing and interrogating people. Therefore, they can include and exclude people rather quickly. And with high levels of success, and high levels of making the right decision of who to get to let go and who to still follow up on. Add to that forensic evidence. There is about a 99% chance that there, the DNA of the killer is in this crime scene. My prediction now, and, and I'm not a, a better, so uh, I don't predict, I predict on things that are uh, statistically can be proven. 
they have his DNA. They just don't have it identified. So the killer's DNA is in that crime scene and in probably left blood in that scene. However, the killer's blood is not in the CODIS system. That's the combined DNA index system, which is run by the FBI, two types, offender and forensic. The DNA that was left in this crime scene has not been identified. So that is, it's good and bad. It's good that he will, the killer will be identified at some point. However, he's not identified right now. Tom Cusinelli, Cusinelli thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat that's retired NYPD. Captain Tom Cusinelli. Good man. Thank you very much man. for your support. So guys, thoughts, Mike, your thoughts. Well, I mean, I, I one of the things I saw immediately that struck me from after like the second week of the investigation was when the, the students all went home for the break. And that puts a real crimp on the old fashioned detective work, going out there in an organizational manner, put fanning out detectives and covering different dorms, different areas, different streets, things like that, uh, people going through people in the neighborhood. And then the students, many of them did not come back. And I, I think what they're trying to do now uh, is try to kind of jog people's memories and say, look, you know, maybe you never came forward. Maybe you've gone home and you haven't come back. Please just give us a little bit of uh, something to work with right now, because right we're having, we're getting the DNA evidence. We're getting the, you know, fingerprint evidence. We're getting the phone evidence, but it's going to come down to probably old fashioned police work. Somebody saying something to the police, the police going back, you know, as you guys say, spitballing, and uh, then finding the the uh, scientific scientific evidence to actually place that person that you think may be the, the prime suspect, placing them at the scene, at the time, at the location, you know, on that date. So I think this is kind of dis it is disconcerting, but I think the the hard part was in the beginning when everybody uh, cut out for for vacation and really kind of threw the old fashioned part of police work kind of threw everybody for a curve. You know, Mike, I don't want to uh, get down on Joe Jack alone. I know him. I like the guy. He's, a, he's one of us. He's retired NYPD. However, I disagree with him, and I'm going to say it. I disagree with that. I don't think this is a aha moment or a let's, you know, spike the football moment. I think it's they're reaching out to the public because they really don't have that much right now. And I would love to believe that I'm wrong. But I don't think I am. I think that they're still reaching out. We want your tips. We want your video because we don't have anything right now. Well, we have a lot, a hell of a lot of evidence in that crime scene, but we haven't connected the dots yet. Phil. Billy, I got to agree with you on the fact that you said there's a very high probability that the perpetrator's DNA was left at the crime scene. It was probably already collected, recovered. However, I think at this point, we're so far in six, seven weeks in, if that perpetrator was in the CODA system or if they had a DNA matchup, the perpetrator would either be A, in custody or B, plastered all over the media. So I think that you're right about that. I think it's a very high probability his evidence, whether it be fingerprint, DNA, blood, saliva, hair, some type of uh, evidence is going to be left at that scene. You don't encounter four individuals, stabbed them to death and not leave something behind. I think that's a gimme at that point. Uh, as far as this 
aha moment that everybody keeps talking about. It does seem like they're looking for more tips. Please keep calling in the tips. There's up to 15,000 tips already. That's a lot of work that has to be deciphered, whether it's, you know, suitable for further investigation or if it's just nonsense. Again, uh, might be the the piece of the puzzle that we need might come in on the tip line. Absolutely. But uh, again, uh, do they have somebody in their sites? Do they have somebody on the radar screen? Uh, possibly, but it doesn't seem like they could say we have a suspect at this point. I think we would have been at a different level at this point. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, we're, we're hoping and praying that that DNA evidence will come back to something. But if it was going to come back to somebody, if it was identified, someone would be in handcuffs right now. That's my Absolutely. thoughts. But I, I think that that's not the case. Uh, I, I think that they're, they're still working on a lot of the physical evidence that they've recovered. Let's go back to Joe Jack alone and see what else he says here. Everybody, this is nat national and international. And what they're hoping is that somebody has spotted something that they thought was out of place. And the time was this really to come out with information like this was in the very beginning when this crime happened. But, but when they say no suspect has been identified, does that mean publicly identified? That doesn't mean that they haven't found anybody. Because like, the way that I looked at it, if they had someone on their radar, I think based on what we've seen, they're not going to tell the public, right? They're not going to tell anybody yet until there's arrest. I'm reading that and saying they really have no idea who did this yet. We need more help. Maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Maybe they really do have some suspects, just they haven't publicly identify the suspects what what am i how should i be reading that well yes they, they're not going to you know have look i i think you have suspects or people that they think are involved in this crime whether it's an individual or individuals i have a focus on on specific people and those are the dna and all the different things that they've taken out of the house i think that they would try to maybe key in on a couple of people you gotta remember cell phone records internet records we saw video surveillance, which I refer to as the three forensic horsemen. Those three things, they're, they're putting these pieces together. Now, the case is not moving as fast as the public wants, but that's not the way these cases work. You have a quadruple homicide. This is something that is uh, very time consuming. And the problem that you run into is with the DNA is that there might be multiple donors in a house of, uh, of this kind of situation where it's a college campus and they're going to have to cull through a lot of these things. So. They believe that they have people that they were looking at, right? So they might need a DNA exemplar. They might need to be able to eliminate people. They're not going to keep, they, excuse me, they're going to keep the public and specifically the perpetrator guessing, right? This isn't checkers where the police move and the person move. You you have to play chess, right? You're thinking three moves ahead. And in some investigations, you have to play poker where you have to blow people. The lack of uh, a specific target or anything like that, or even hinting at it, I think would re would be really bad idea, especially the way the true crime community, some in the true crime community, has been really looking into these cases and coming up with their own, you know, wild theories. And look, the true crime community does not decide the investigative direction; the police do. And Jack alone mentioned, you know, uh, cell phone evidence. We we mentioned. Uh, uh, geofencing, which we are surprised they haven't identified anything yet. And that's where they can pull up all electronic devices being used in a specific area in a specific time. We haven't heard anything about that. So obviously that has yet to be successful. 
Many of you in the chat have mentioned, well, that house was a genetic DNA nightmare because so many people were in that house and people left DNA. What I'm referring to, and there's a, a very high percentage chance, is that the killer cut himself and left his blood. That's the DNA I'm speaking about. So it would be blood that would be unidentified uh, DNA from blood. And that's the DNA that we're hoping they can identify. And again, it could it could be that that DNA, they, they have a sample of it, but it's not in CODIS. So they haven't been able to identify it. Barbara Stam, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then this is the place to be. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. Um, it's free. It's free to subscribe on our YouTube. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel members. And you can see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube membership and they support us. And we really appreciate our fans, our subscribers, and our friends. So not to... Oh, can I um, make a point about the geofencing? Yeah, let, me, let me just finish. Go ahead. I don't... Uh, I'm, I'm not totally buying what uh, Jack alone is saying. I just think that they're still putting this case together. And, I, you know, it's it's a difficult case, a quadruple murder. Um, there's, there's nothing obvious about this case. And everyone thought right away that the physical evidence would point to someone right away, and that me included. And guess what? It hasn't. Go ahead, Phil. The thing I was going to talk about with the geofencing, that's going to come into, uh, if they have the information back, uh, there's probably thousands of records, but that's going to come into the interview and interrogation part of the investigation. What I mean by that is, let's say we get a tip. Uh, they name a person of interest. They say that this person uh, didn't show up for work the day uh, after this incident, uh, came into work, had a bandage on a hand. So now we're going to go look. Before we go attack that person and try to do an interview of that person, uh, we're going to go look and see if the cell phone record places that person. Now we're going to try and build some other stuff before we go interview them. Now, when we get them in the interview room, we get them in the box and we ask them, where were you? Uh, specific things like that. Now we have ammunition. Well, guess what? You're saying you were over there, but guess what? Your cell phone places you right outside the location. Things like that will be the tools that interview and interrogators will use when they get a person that they think is a strong suspect in this case. 100%. Lee Perry, thank you so much for the 999 super sticker. Very much appreciated. Thank you for thank your you, support. Lee. You know, folks, the this, this is a painstaking investigation. And of course, we and the press and the public, especially people that live in Moscow, Idaho, they want results because there is a killer out there in their community. So you can imagine how frustrated and how on edge the Moscow community is. Mike. Yeah, the um, I think one of the difficulties, grave difficulties that the public doesn't understand is that if you have one body, you could do a victimology study of that, of that uh, person and perhaps come up with a, a single person, maybe two suspects who may have some sort of motivation to kill that person. With four suspects, we always thought at the very beginning that Ms. Gonsalves was the... Uh, target and the other three may have been, you know, you'd want to say collateral damage and that she was the uh, intended target. So 
who would be the, so you'd look at the victimology of her and see which, who is possibly fixated on her. But with actually four people, you have to do four, it's four times the work. It might, may not be that she was the intended target. It may have been Ms. Mogan or someone else there that may have been the intended target. So it really makes it difficult for the police because you have to do four times the amount of, of everything in this case compared to uh, a case that they see on TV where there's a single person, you know, that's been shot. Exactly. Let's play a little more of Joe Jack alone and then we'll move on. And, and kind of like some, some have actually interfered with it, right? We're, we're seeing the release of videos and everything else, which is not good. And I'm going to get to that in a second. I another aspect murder weapon recovered. Having said that, is it possible the police department, excuse me, the police department has recovered the murder weapon, but they just won't tell us? No, I think they would tell us if they recovered the murder weapon, right? So the issue, unless they want to try to track down where it was possibly bought, uh, there's a serial number on it, you know, trace that down. We have federal agencies involved in this, right? So we have, um, you know, the FBI working on this. We have access to databases and those kind of things where they could find out. So, listen, finding the murder weapon is extremely important in this case. But will it identify the person who is responsible? Maybe. You got to remember, the person who bought it might not be the responsible person who actually committed these acts, right? It could have been somebody bought it, somebody stole it, somebody bought it in their home and somebody took it from their home, right? Unbeknownst to the owner. So these have to be taken into consideration. You had mentioned something about, um, you know, people online getting involved and that had to be a distraction. Well, one of the other bullet points in this Moscow Police Department uh, press release is they say at the time uh, in this investigation, detectives do not believe that the female associate professor and chair of the history department at, at the University of Idaho suing a TikTok user for defamation is involved in this crime. The Moscow Police Department will not provide a statement about the ongoing civil process. Now, to give everybody a little bit more context. I don't want to really get into that. That's sort of like just uh, basically, if you don't know the story, someone, uh, a content creator on TikTok, pointed the finger at some uh, University of Idaho female professor that said she's the killer. I mean, just the outrageous allegation. And then they were talking about can that person be a arrested for uh, you know aggravated harassment. And B, sued civilly, yes to both of those questions. Let's put that to, to bed because I don't think it's that interesting that we need to uh, concentrate on that. But what we are concentrating on is, you know, one of the videos that, that was out there was um, one of the police going to the house. I believe it was September. And none of the people that lived in the house were there. It was like a big party being thrown at the house. And... That's concerning when you talk about. So anyone, it seemed, had access to that house. So that opens it up to like, well, then who's the suspect? Thousands of people, hundreds, let's say hundreds of people had been in, in and out of that house and not just this semester, but semesters before that. So that is a bit concerning, don't you think? Billy, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of, other than the car, the white Hyundai that they're talking about, that body-worn video shows a police officer going to the location. He engages a female at the front door, and he finds out from her. He gets the information that no one that lives at the location is there. However, you could hear that a noisy party is going on. I would want to 
identify every one of the people that was present in that home. And I want to know what happened after the police left. Was there some type of an argument where people that lived there came home and threw everybody out? Was there someone there that was acting irrational? Was there someone who was out of control, drunk? Was there some type of an altercation? I want to identify every person, interview them. I want to find out what happened. And that may lead you right to the killer. Again, uh, with all those people being familiar with the layout of the home, that opens up a whole new pool of possible suspects. Well, you know, I was always interested in, and someone else said it in the chat, did they interview everyone in the fraternity that, that was uh, Ethan's fraternity? And did they interview every single person in the sorority that all the girls belong to? I would think that would be like a no-brainer. I don't know how many people that would entail. And we mentioned a million times, and I don't know. Look, none of us know this. I would have asked all of them for DNA samples, a DNA exemplar, and I would have asked them for major case fingerprints. Look, we all know they're college-educated. They could say, no, I'm not giving it over, and that doesn't make them – any more of a suspect, Mike, you're an attorney and you know that, but they have, they have the right to turn the police down. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The invocation of your constitutional rights under the fourth, fifth or sixth amendment uh, can't be used to, uh, by the police to heighten you know, the awareness or the criminal suspicion. You can keep that in the back of your mind. Absolutely. But uh, you can't use that refusal as the basis of any further, um, heightened awareness, say, for instance, to get an arrest warrant or a search warrant or something like that. But, you know, this also, that whole incident in September when people that didn't even live in that house were throwing a party at that house, that says a lot about that house. And it also says a lot to the police, like, wow, we have our work cut out for us now because think if drinking and party, what else was going on in that house? And it was a big house. So how many people could fit in that house at one time when they had a party. I mean, I've been to parties when I was in college. They'd squeeze 100 people into a house that, uh, you know, that three people lived in, you know. And, uh, I mean, we've all been to parties like that. So you can imagine a house like this that was a a rather large house. They probably had squeezed, you know, hundreds of people in there. And, Bill, one one other thing, just to piggyback on that, is the fact that this house may have had people in and out Quite, quite often, it may be that the person who killed these four people wasn't sure. Maybe they weren't looking for those particular people or one of those four people. Maybe they're looking for somebody else. Maybe that house was a very open house in terms of people uh, you know, sleeping there for the weekend or uh, considering it like a safe house. Yeah, no, I, look, I think all your, those points are absolutely valid. Uh, let me play a little bit of this here. This morning, a new appeal for information to solve November murder for students from the City of Iowa Police Department put out a renewed call for social media content, pictures, and videos from the community saying whether you believe it is significant or not, your information might be one of the puzzle pieces that helps solve these murders. Weeks after the deaths, with no word of a major break in the case, members of the community are on edge. Everybody's doing the best they can under duress. It's really stressful. And we're just waiting, hopefully, every day to hear some good news. The Moscow police also addressing the latest on that 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra spotted near the scene, saying they have identified over 22,000 vehicles and that whoever was inside may have critical information about the case. Mystery has surrounded the murders of Rumi's Madison Mogan and Zaina Kernodal, 
as well as his boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, all stabbed to death inside a house. Two roommates on the ground floor. Police say they're not suspects and likely slept through the attack. Police say they have combed through thousands of leads, but have not announced suspects or persons of interest. Cole Alternator lived in that home on King Road in Moscow during his junior year. It's definitely an old creaky house. You can't walk up any of the stairs or on any of the floors without everybody in the house knowing it. The family's growing desperate for answers as they face the holidays without their loved ones. Madison Mogan's dad telling the Spokesman Review he remains hopeful. From the very beginning, I've known that people don't get away with these things these days. There's too many things that you can get caught up on, like DNA and videos everywhere. Kaylee Gonzalez's father speaking with ABC Jatagib. It's a shame, you know, and everybody wants it to go away. And it needs to go away, but it can only go away when we have justice. A feeling echoed by those living in Moscow, worried about a killer on the loose. We need to find this person or persons. So you can see that the, the community is definitely on edge with this. And, you know, when it stretches into, I think this is week seven, right? Um, it doesn't give a lot of confidence to the community. And I, I think that, you know, we, we mentioned this before, that how you get the information out to community without sharing secrets is an art form in itself. Phil? Uh, obviously, you want to keep things very close to the vest, but there are things that have already been reported in the media by the police. They're talking about a specific weapon. This is not just an ordinary kitchen knife. This is not, you know, somebody picked up a knife that was uh, close by or just a pocket knife. They're talking about a very large hunting knife. That led me to come to the conclusion that I believe the perpetrator is going to have some hunting background, maybe uh, familiar with gutting animals. And I also believe to slaughter four people, I was on Banfield last night and I commented about this last night, uh, a person that's 120 pounds soaking wet is not going to be the perpetrator. They slaughtered four people. It's probably going to be someone of big stature, a strong person. And again, I, I'm going to say this. I said it before. I'm going to say it again. I believe that either the house was specifically targeted or one perhaps more of the victims one or more of the victims was also specifically targeted i think that that's uh, that's my opinion my professional opinion based on the information that's already been reported in the public i don't think that a perpetrator stuck a pin in a map and said i'm going to go to this location and kill four people i doubt that very highly you know, I, I happen to agree with you phil and the other thing is this weapon you know we it's been covered by uh, all kinds of experts, weapon experts, behavioral uh, analysis folks from the FBI. And everyone agrees that it's a substantial size knife. You know, uh, many tried to point out that it's possibly a K-bar knife that's used by the Marines in the Marine Corps or a knife that type because of the large wounds that it caused in these bodies. So when people say, oh, how do they know it was, you know, two things that does. A, it shows that it was premeditated because the person that did this had to bring that knife with him with the intention of doing what he did, right? And it shows that he has some type of skill with this type of knife. Mike? Yeah, I, I, I agree. The uh, the lacerations on, on, the, on the chest area, maybe the throat, are going to indicate very quickly 
uh, you know, the, the, the size of the blade and the, uh, and the, uh, the mar puncture marks in the chest. And uh, that leads us to believe that it pot, you know, pretty much, you know, it's going to be a 99% chance it's a young man. And um, I'm thinking probably a person from that area, from, from the, the surrounding area. If not Moscow itself, there's definitely the surrounding area. This is the father of, uh, of one of the victims. I'm trying to figure this out. And uh, it really means a lot. A father of one of the victims speaks out. A former tenant talks about the crime scene and online slews target an ex-boyfriend. We delve into the University of Idaho murder investigation. former homicide detective, Phil. Sidebar, presented by Law and Crime, I'm Jesse Weber. Another week, another day, and still no arrests, no publicly identifiable suspect, and no recovered murder weapon in the University of Idaho quadruple murder case. This is the killings of 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves, 21-year-old Madison Mogan, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal, and 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. Their bodies were found in their rental home on November 13th, and there's still so many questions that we have. Now, while we don't know what is happening behind the scenes with law enforcement investigators, what we can discuss is what's happening publicly because we do have some updates to go through. And to help me talk through this and get the latest in the investigation about where we're at, I'm joined once again by Phil Waters, who has been with us the last few weeks to go over this case. Phil is a former legendary homicide detective who has worked over 400 cases and Interrogator Phil, it's great to have you once again back here on Sidebar. Good morning, Jesse. I appreciate y'all having me back. Yeah, of course. And I want to start with right now, Ben Mogan. So Ben Mogan, father of Madison Mogan, out previously. I could be mistaken, but this is said. He spoke to a local media outlet, and he said, while there, there while there are still so many questions that haven't been answered in this case, he believes the killer or killers will be caught. So this is kind of a different sense of what we've been seeing online and from the community where there's this seeming lack of trust in law enforcement. He has said, quote, from the very beginning, I've known that people don't get don't get away with these things these days. There's too many things that you can get caught up on, like DNA and videos everywhere. This isn't something that people get away with. That goes unsolved. He also said, you know, that how state investigators have been getting uh, kind of outside help from the FBI. And he said that with these resources, they should be able to solve the case. He said, quote, I have to just know that they know what they're doing. And if they don't, then they're going to know someone that does. What do you make of his statements? Do you agree with him? Well, to a degree, I do. And uh, I'm, of course, you know, heartfelt prayers have been going up for uh, for him and the other the other family members of these uh, these young people that, uh, you know, the tragic, tragic event. I, I do agree with him to in, in the sense that there are a lot, lot uh, was now to technological standpoint that has brought the conclusion to cases uh, brought about in a in a more timely way. Now, I use that word timely loosely because it may take the. the the timely manner in this case, it may be two months, it may be two years, and uh, it, and it you know could go in from there. The, the statement that he makes about people didn't get away with this kind of thing in today's world, 
that is true to a degree. But again, the, this is when it comes down to is it can be good detective work that gets this thing solved. And that as hitting Rick's getting out there, talking to people, processing the and collected, and then seeing where that evidence leads. Um, so I think there's a, a better chance that something like this, especially the, this this particular crime, uh, will be will be resolved. So we we had said that early on also that we we definitely felt that uh, this case is going to be solved, but it's the timeliness of it that we're not sure of. Eliza Krogan, thank you for the ten dollar super sticker, much appreciated. Patty Banks, thank you for the one ninety nine super sticker. And question, does law enforcement also have to give their DNA? They don't have to, but they may take DNA from law enforcement in this case as elimination DNA in case their DNA got inside that house. And they, they might ask them to do a exemplar or a swab to eliminate their DNA from the house. Uh, Mike. Yeah, I think when you hit it on the head earlier when you were talking about DNA and you said, you know, you could have a house that's full of uh you know, fingerprints, you could have uh, uh, hair fibers, things like that, but you can't explain away your, you can explain that away, but you can't explain away how your blood got there. So, and you had mentioned that earlier, that if there is DNA, uh, DNA in the form of blood from the killer, um, that's something that the it, it, a suspect could not explain away um, like they could explain away. Well, I was there three weeks earlier at a party and a piece of my hair fell out you know, totally different. There's different kinds of DNA and uh, some is ex explainable and some isn't. Absolutely. Phil? I want to answer one of the questions that was put to Mike Jackalone. The uh, person that was questioning him asked him, what are you concerned about? What I'm concerned about is this. Number one, the FBI profilers have been there since almost day one. Why haven't they put out some type of a profile of who they think, uh, even if it's general or maybe a 10 or 15 year stretch on, on the age of the perpetrator, or the race of the perpetrator, there should be a profile out. Now, they don't seem to have put out anything regarding a suspect to look out for a male white, a male black, whatever it is. So they don't have that, it seems like. And the third thing is no reward. I would think that there would have been a reward put up early on in this. It's seven weeks. The family should get together and come up with the money if law enforcement doesn't want to do it and put out a reward. Money opens doors in cases like this. And some, something that was suspicious that someone may have did showed up at work with a cut hand or something like that, that might be the key to the puzzle. Those are the things that concern me. Not what uh, lack of uh, evidence is being put forth to the media. Those are the things that concern me. You know, uh, Dr. Michael Bodden appeared on Fox uh, a day or two ago, and I want to just play a little bit of what he had to say about this case. High profile crime and murder. Dr. Michael Bodden is a forensic pathologist and Fox News contributor and joins me to break down some of the most talked about cases. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's one that is on a lot of people's start with the latest, the unsolved mystery of those four beautiful University of Idaho students. And we do have new body camera video from police department there. It shows officers responding to a noise complaint. Students were murdered and spoke to victim Madison Mogan back in September. Take a look. 
This is the um, video we were referring to that uh, this was earlier on that showed there was just a, a huge party at the house and not attended by uh, the people that live there. All right, Madison. So here's the deal. Okay. They've already said that in here lives at, uh, like none of the that live at this address are here right now. Yeah. Notice complaint. We want that music turned down. Um, and we don't want to come back again tonight. Does that have anything possibly the case whatsoever? And what are your top line thoughts on this? Well, uh, it's now since uh, the deaths uh, occurred and uh, there's less and less information being given out uh, by the police. And there's an issue raised uh, that I've been looking, tracking the, the matter. Uh, as to whether anything or they do have a lot of information that isn't being released. And I think there was an issue way back at the beginning that a neighbor heard a, um, uh, a sound or a scream around the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. Uh, the murder occurred, but that's never been flushed out as whether or not uh, it actually pertains to what happened about three or four o'clock in the morning six uh, weeks ago. Uh, I think the evidence thus far would indicate that whoever went into the residence and killed the four people, stabbed them uh, with the same, uh, knew the place, knew where how to go up to the third floor first. Here's to be the girl's target and would have known the person. Uh, then he went downstairs and had taken up the uh, Two people on the second floor stabbed them death. The two people on the first floor, which is away from the uh, from the, uh, uh, were not touched and didn't hear anything. But right now, it's unsolved murders and a real uh, fear. A, and Dr. Bonin, it you know, the families are understandably frustrated um, and they want answers. Are, just quickly here, are you concerned that this could turn into a case? 50, more than 50 now in the United States, we don't get this from the television shows, become cold cases, right. don't get solved. That that has to be kept in mind. Unbelievable statistic but there. That's sort of a scary statistic that most people don't know that now nationally, only 50% of all murders are solved, meaning that 50% go unsolved. One good thing to add to that, though, is that there is no statute of limitations to murder, and someone could be arrested for a murder 30 years from now and convicted of it. But that's not a statistic that gives us all, makes us feel good, I'll put it that way. Yeah, that's that's not a good uh, good batting average when it comes to uh, investigating murders and trying to get justice for the victims. But uh, you know, uh, Baden is a, a great uh, uh, you know medical investigator, and he had some great comments over the uh, over the course of the last seven weeks on this case. And he pointed out about the uh, the Im impact of the uh, of the blade from the uh, on the victim's bodies that it made a mark, which there was some type of guard. That's how they got to the what they believe is that uh, hunting knife. So again, uh, he's really experienced. He's been around. He was the chief medical examiner in New York for a number of years. So yes. uh, I, I I like his comment. 
You know, one of the things he said that uh, I don't know if people caught it, and I never heard anyone say that before, and I don't think he's correct either, is he said that the killer went up to the third floor first. Yeah. All the two girls and then came down. That's the first time I've ever heard that. Right. It's believed that the killer killed the two people on the second floor first and then went up to the third floor. That's how it's been reported to me. Did anyone hear any differently? That's the first time I have ever heard it reported like this. Yeah, it was, it was the, uh, the thought was that they came into the back door, which leads you into the second floor. Right. And right. then, then you, you can't actually get into the third floor balcony, the little balcony area, unless you maybe like climbed a tree, there was maybe an overhanging branch, but it was always thought that the two, uh, Girls on the second floor were the ones oh, that, was that were- It was right. actually Ethan Chapin. I'm sorry, Ethan Chapin and his girlfriend. Lena Canodal were on the second floor right. and that they were killed first and right. then he went up to right. the third floor. That, that would That's, logically- Right, so this is the first time I've heard this. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think it was ever really determined publicly by law enforcement killed first. Right. Maybe he has an inside track on that inside knowledge. And we really don't know 100% that the perpetrator entered from the second floor level. That's the most likely position that I think. But however, there is a sliding door on the third floor with that little deck. There was a ladder on the side of the building. We don't know what the exact entry point was. It's either going to be the second or the third floor rear of that location. I don't know. He kind of said it to me. That, that caught my attention too, Billy. Almost like he knew it, that the people on the third floor were killed first. And I believe that would be uh, that would be Mogan and Goncalves. I don't believe he's right. I think he just... Uh, but they were, they were on the third floor. That we've determined, yes, correct? Yes. Ethan, Ethan Chapin and Zayna Canodal were on the second floor. So right, uh, right, I'm not, right. uh, okay. let me I just play a little the, bit. That's yet to be determined. How college students were brutally murdered in their apartment and the horrific crime certainly on edge. Police urging anyone with information to contact authorities. Still, there are no suspects. News Nation's Nancy Liu joining us now from Moscow. And Nancy, what is the mood in the town almost two months later? Well, Natasha, locals tell me that it's definitely a different vibe around town with a national spotlight on it because of a quadruple murder. Amid the anxiety over the search for a killer, residents are hopeful that there will eventually be a return to a new normal. Even on a gray day, Moscow, Idaho is picturesque, and there's a strong sense of pride in this college town of about 25,000. I think it's a, it's a great community, um, super small. I love walking down. Every time I walk down the street, I see someone I know, and I love that. But along Main Street, reminders of a murder mystery that remains unsolved. The weathered memorial outside the restaurant where two of the victims worked makes it clear it's been quite some time since the stabbing deaths on November 13th. So very sad, scary, you're still locking our doors, which is new, <laughs> never did before. Almost every business is displaying this poster, a plea for tips and information about the killings of Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernodal. In their latest update, Moscow police said they believe someone has information that will add context to what happened the night of the murders. Investigators continue to seek pictures pictures or video that may along with information white Hyundai Elantra spotted near the scene. Some residents are understanding that police have yet 
to make an arrest. I bet it's, it's pretty standard for, for what's happened. Law enforcement is doing their best and I hope they praying that they find the leader for sure. On Banfield, a Moscow resident place shooting back in 2015, also expressing community confidence. We're a small community. We are a safe community. For every I moved here and I thought I was bringing my family to a safer place and I still believe that. Town remains fairly quiet with Idaho students still on winter break. In its latest release, the Moscow Police Department also thanked the community for its continued support and patience and also understanding that only very limited information can be shared. Natasha. Yeah, such a terrible situation for that community and it just keeps going. Nancy Liu, live for us in Moscow, Idaho. Thank you. Thank you for watching. So folks, you could see uh, it, that said it all. Uh, the woman that came on the screen and said, we don't even lock our doors in Moscow. And she said, well, we do now, you know, and it's uh, overnight. This has changed a community from being probably one of the safest communities in the country. And, and it probably still is safe, but except there's a killer out there and it's changed people's lives. And this little safe community that, is uh, dwarfed by the University of Idaho. I think 2,000 people from the community work at the university. So it's a thriving part of that community. And the unrest that this has caused, I don't think you can, uh, you can, you can estimate this. Absolutely, Billy. I think uh, it's a shame that people that lived in a community that didn't have to lock doors are now concerned and, and afraid. And like you said, there's a killer amongst uh, that community or somewhere close to that community. And until uh, an arrest is made, I think that these people are going to be on guard and they should be. And I'm just glad to see that those posters are around the neighborhood, around the, the town. Uh, you know, maybe it'll jog someone's memory to uh, think back and maybe, uh, you know, drop a dime on someone that was uh, acting unusual or acting suspicious or perhaps had, uh, we talked about the wounds on the hands, uh, maybe uh, disappeared for a few days after the murder, didn't show up at work or whatever. All of those things uh, are very, very important to keep, uh, you know, keep out there in the media, keep out there in that town. Uh, hopefully uh, something will jog in someone's memory and they'll come up with the uh, the key piece of the puzzle that'll put the whole thing together. Mike? Yeah, this is um, this is a landmark case. As you, as you and Phil know, you talk about in New York City, you know, you, there's a few, it was, there's a few landmark cases that stand out in people's minds for generations. Uh, I was just thinking a, a few minutes ago about the Kitty Genovese case from 1964. That's something people always talk about still to this day. And, um, you know, um, and the gentleman who was killed uh, at, at, after watching the U.S. Open, Bill, you had mentioned. Uh, uh, Brian Watkins. Right. Brian there are Watkins. certain cases. And this is that kind of case. There's going to be a before and after effect in this town. And it's sad. And they have to live with this. And um, I think the people that, you know, put a lot of information out there on, on the Internet, the Internet sleuths, uh, do a disservice to the people to make it even to make a terrible situation even worse. Absolutely. Phil, Phil. 
Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off-the-cuff real crime stories and a tremendous, excellent trial attorney. So, folks, we started tonight's show with the fact that um, there's no suspects, but it, it was sort of uh, put out there that um, uh, that potentially the uh, Moscow police have a suspect. And I don't believe that's true uh, on law and crime. Uh, our compadre, Joe Jackalone, retired NYPD sergeant, had, had spoke about it in his, his opinion uh, in regards to this. But we don't think that at this point that there is, um, there, there is. However, uh, once a record a is released, we can verify its authenticity as we do not know if anything was, has been altered. Detectives are aware of videos distributed by local businesses. What does that mean? It's quite unfortunate. We've seen at least one video released in its entirety. Where we had basically, it was, it was it really was interesting is that it was recording audio. Now you, you'd have to ask a lawyer about this. But, um, from far as I was concerned, you can't record audio unless you're part of the conversation. So to me, that was an interesting thing. So everybody who was walking by, we heard, you know. So that that was where the whole thing about Adam, Adam, I think, or something, some in substance like that, where they were talking about the girls were walking down, and and of course we jumped on that. So. That was an unfortunate release, and we now saw, I think, a still photo of something inside the bar. Uh, oh, yeah, let me let me let me address that real quick. So there are reporters. This new could be Gonsalves inside a bar one a.m. night of the murders. It's an image apparently from a surveillance video. Again, it hasn't been authenticated. Now, remember, it's believed that they got home close to I think uh, to two a.m. and we believe that the killings happened between three a.m. or four a.m. Yeah, talk to me what you make of that image that's circulating online. So yeah, so so we have another you know release now. Th this is actually probably th some of the worst things that you could see what could happen in this situation where we have either businesses who are sharing this with true crime people and they're putting it out on on media or on YouTube or what have you. This doesn't help the investigation, right? This actually only now compounds issues. And we see the police department do this a number of times, answering out things specifically from the public, right? And that's not, not even the media or the press. This is, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, journalists and reporters asking for this stuff. We have people from all over the country. And, you know, here's the other thing. And not really many people are talking about it. They've had over, I think they said 10,000 tips Right. That, that's kind of unheard of, which means to me that most of the tips that they're getting have little to no value. But the police department is has to go through each and every one of these things. They have to be answered out somehow. So these are then time consuming. And you saw the FBI adding, I think it was 10 agents. Uh, if, if we're chasing down 
leads that have nothing to do with it, I, you know, and then complain that this is taking too long. I think we could kind of figure out exactly where, you know, where the problem actually is. Uh, we don't want to turn people off. And they, they specifically said kind of that, that kind of cop talk in there, too, that even if you think it's not important, send it to us anyway. So, yeah, they don't want to prevent somebody who knows something from doing it. But here's again, I mean, we're, we're dealing, they're dealing with an enormous. So, I, I mean, I agree with him with, to, uh, with that, with the tips, because they have to check out every single tip and getting 10, I think they got 10,000 like phone tips and then another two or 3,000 uh, text tips and uh, email type tips. So it, it has to be checked out and closed out in some way. But Phil, you mentioned earlier, you know, why was there no reward? And I feel and uh, that a reward, it ups the level of tips, meaning that the tips are, are more truthful when there's money involved uh, for some reason. A lot of people uh, that are giving tips, you know, I would say in most cases, 60 to 70 percent of the tips are just pure garbage. And like someone knows nothing but just. Is calling the police department because they can, you know, and compared to what is an actually a good tip. You know, Billy, uh, just quick, um, a, a case that I was involved in a number of years back, a video was put out of a perpetrator on 4th of July, on 4th of July. Naturally, people called up, uh, you know, uh, this guy's the person that did it. The neighbor was shooting fireworks off, so they wanted to, you know, bring the police to his door to get him to stop shooting the fireworks. But then on the 5th, when a reward was put out of a high number, $50,000, within hours, Two calls were made identifying the perpetrator of the case. I know that it will generate more tips. You're right about that, Billy. But you know what? At this point, uh, it, it's so far into the investigation, they should have had a reward right away. Again, I, I still call for that. And I call for, uh, you know, the parents, uh, the families getting together and forming a coalition, staying on the same page with law enforcement. It seems like... Um, Gonsalves is, uh, Mr. Gonsalves has now, uh, you know, he's in the camp of the police again. It seemed like he was out for a little bit, but it seems like he's in. And Mr. Morgan is saying that he's got faith in the police. Let's all be on the same page with this thing. That's important for this investigation. But, you know, I'm thinking, though, you know, we started this uh, this episode out with the, the fact that um, that he, uh, Joe Jackalone and the Law and Crime Network thought that there was about to be a breakthrough in this case. And I'm not uh, seeing that at this uh, juncture. And I just wanted to sum it up because that's the whole premise of this show. Do we think that there is going to be a breakthrough soon? Uh, Mike, Professor Mike? Um, the, the breakthrough would have to be uh, some sort of, you know, DNA evidence, blood evidence connected to geofencing, as Phil talked about, you know, getting a particular suspect DNA and in a form of blood at that location. And then as Phil pointed out, and then pinning them down to a specific time period where their, uh, their phone was on in the, in the area, that would be a tremendous break, but that's how the form it's going to take. And that's, but as you, you guys know, uh, analyzing that, putting it all together, it, it's going to take a while. And these, and this is as Mr. Uh, uh, retired Sergeant Jack alone said, you know, you could see this going more, more months. That's just the reality. 
No, no, absolutely. None of this stuff uh, happens quickly unless there's some, you know, the, the I use the term smoking gun, smoking gun piece of evidence early on that points directly to someone. But all of the evidence, the scientific evidence that we're talking about, the DNA, the blood, the hair, the fibers, the geofencing, the cell phone information, all the physical evidence looking for the vehicle, that white Hyundai uh, um, Elantra that has that is, is not been identified, the murder weapon, which has never been recovered. All of those things, the potential DNA that could be that we don't know because the medical examiner's report has never been released yet either. Could there have been DNA underneath the fingernails of, of the deceased that because they fought back and they got some of the perpetrator's DNA underneath their fingernails or on their skin or touch DNA? All of that stuff uh, takes time. And right now it is within the time frame where a lot of the evidence should be back. And we spoke about that before. We still don't have the toxicology back. Uh, which is usually a six to eight week affair anyway. So that's also within the time frame. Phil? Billy, I just want to make a point about what Mike just said. Uh, if the case does go on for months, it's uh, not such a bad thing, so to speak, because as time goes on, like you guys just pointed out, the DNA evidence comes back, the toxicology comes back, the geofencing information comes back. Now, maybe down the line, we get a, a lead on a person that we think is a person of interest or a suspect. So now we're going to look into that person's um, uh, you know, work records. What they at work uh, the days after this uh, particular incident took place. All of those things will be all the ammunition that I would have ready if I get somebody in the box, whether it be tomorrow or six months from now, that I could say, well, I'm going to put holes in their story. I'm going to let them tell their story, ask them some questions, and then I'm going to have all this other information, whether it be cell phone evidence, DNA evidence, touch DNA, hair fibers, whatever it is, the vehicle in question that this person may have gotten rid of the vehicle, sold the vehicle, whatever. All of those things are going to be in the toolbox, so to speak, when we do come up with a suspect. Absolutely. Uh, Tom Cusinelli, again, thanks for the 999 thanks, Super Tom. Chat. I'm seeing a lot of new names in the chat. Uh, I'm glad to see a lot of folks joining the uh, Police Off the Cuff family. If you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and, and, and ring that bell. I just, you know, we sort of came on the air tonight uh, because it, there seemed to be what information out there, like almost like there was a breakthrough. And uh, I'm not seeing it right now. I'm not seeing this as a breakthrough. I would love to be on the air when there is a breakthrough, when there's real information that they have a suspect. That would be thrilling to be able to report that. I don't think they're at that right now. I don't think they're at that uh, at that phase. But we can definitely see that happening. Uh, I said early on that I really do believe that this case is going to be solved and it's going to be science that helps solve this case. Professor Mike. Yeah. Science will put the finishing touch on it, but as Phil said, it's going to take getting a person, uh, a suspect named, bringing them in, pinning them down with logic and letting them speak, let them tell their lie. And then, you know, playing exactly. your cards, boxing them in seven ways to Sunday so they can't escape. So the finishing touch will be DNA. The hard work is going to be, it's still out there. You know, there's still a lot of hard work to do because you still have a lot of suspects that you still have not interviewed. 
100%. Phil, final final thoughts. Final thoughts. Listen, this case is complicated. Uh, it's obviously uh, going on for a period of time here. Uh, we're about seven weeks in. I have faith in the law enforcement officers. I think it is going to be solved. It's going to be exactly what Mike and Bill and I have said. It's going to be the evidence that was collected that's going to tie the perpetrator in. That's going to be the finishing touches on whoever the perpetrator may be. I'll say one other thing that I said earlier. I do believe that it's weapon-specific and victim specific that they were targeted, either the house or the victims. That's going to be an important part of this investigation. I don't think random, you know, pin in the map and saying, let me go kill four people. I just want to repeat that. Happy new year to everybody that's uh, listening. All our subscribers, all our fans. We love you guys. Stay with us. God bless and uh, stay safe. Mike, final words. Yeah. Just patience, patience and pray for the family and, uh, and uh, just uh, pray for the officers that are working nonstop. This is something that's Absolutely. a matter of pride for them. And they have a duty, a sworn duty to the to the victims. And they're going to carry out their duty as best they can. 100%. Folks, uh, to, to, to all the families of the victims, we pray for you guys. We pray for that there'll be a, a, a speedy arrest in this case. But mostly for how you're feeling and how you're getting on during this holiday season. Uh, folks, have a safe night. God bless and have a happy new year. Stay safe, everyone. Take care, everybody. One episode, just